Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 71 where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio and from dim recollections of a possibly implanted memory. Ooh. We got a special one today, don't we here, Chris? We do. It's a new year and a happy new year-niverse. Oh, yeah. Ah. We, were, we were looking for something like this, you know. <laughs> I think uh, many newer readers might think that the new 52 was the first all-new universe, but that's not the case, as we're going to talk about today when we read Star Brand number 1, October 1986 cover date, scripted by Jim Shooter, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Williamson, lettered by Joe Rosen, Colored by Christy Skeel, edited by Michael Higgins at a cover price of seventy-five cents USD, ninety-five cents Canadian. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, we are going to delve into the bio, but I want to give a little caveat: this episode is secretly a Jim Shooter bio, which is something this is true. <laughs> Chris and I have wanted to do for a long time. Uh, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna jump right into it. Let the uh, you know facts speak for themselves, and we'll at the end we're gonna have our own opinion. We'll throw our two cents in there, but, yeah. Uh, Let's let's talk about him right now. Yes, yeah, so Mr. Jim Shooter, born September 27th, 1951, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was going to say Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. That's not a place. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, now, Jim Shooter read comics as a child, though he stopped when he was about eight years old. Uh, his interest in comics was rekindled in 1963 while he was recovering from minor surgery. Uh, he found the DC comic stories to be similar to the DC comic stories that he'd read years earlier in grade school. Uh, but he was impressed with the style of upstart publisher Marvel Comics, thinking that if he learned to write the types of stories that Marvel published, uh, he would be an asset to DC Comics, whose uh, books Shooter felt needed the help. Shooter spent about a year reading and studying comics from both of the companies. Uh, Then, in mid-1965, at age, at the ripe old age of 13, (laughs) Jim wrote and drew stories featuring the Legion of Superheroes and sent them into D.C. Then on uh, February 10th of 1966, Jim received a phone call from editor Mort Weisinger. He wanted to purchase the story Shooter had sent and commissioned Shooter to write a Supergirl story and a Superman story right over the phone. The first published Superman story written by Jim Shooter was Brainiac's Blitz in Action Comics number 339. That was a July 1966 cover date drawn by Jim Mooney. Uh, We really can't say for sure that's the first story that he wrote, just what was first published. And his Supergirl story is even more difficult to tell. It may have never been published at all. We don't know what story that was for sure. Uh, Weisinger eventually offered Shooter a regular position in writing Legion of Superhero stories in Adventure Comics. The first to see publication was Adventure Comics number 346, July 1966 cover, drawn by Sheldon Moldoff, titled, One of Us is a Traitor. Now, Mort wanted Shooter to come to New York to spend a couple days in his office. Shooter, who was 14 at the time and still lived in Pittsburgh, had to wait until school was in recess, uh, <laughs> after which he went to uh, New York with his mother. And, uh, you know, more <laughs> wiser is probably like, uh, child labor law. Yeah. Never heard of them. Yeah, no, no, no. No. <laughs> we don't have those here. 
Now, according to Shooter, his father earned very little as a steel worker, and Shooter saw that comic book writing would be a means of helping his family out financially. Uh, he would reflect in a 2010 interview, uh, My family needed the money. I was doing this to save the house. My father had a beat-up old car, and the engine died. This is before I started working for DC, and that first check bought a rebuilt engine for his car so he didn't have to walk to work anymore. I was doing this because I had to, working my way through high school to help my to help keep my family alive. Now we're just going to do a little sidebar, talk a little bit about Pittsburgh, uh, the history of it. Uh, already a major producer of Iron and Tin in 1875, financier Andrew Carnegie began steel production at the Edgar Thomas Steelworks in North Braddock, Pennsylvania. And that evolved into the Carnegie Steel Company in 1901, absorbed several other companies to become U.S. Steel, which I believe is the major steel company today. By mm -hmm. 1910, Pittsburgh was the nation's eighth largest city, accounting for between a third and half of national steel output. During World War II, demand increased and area mills operated 24 hours a day to produce 95 million tons of steel for the war effort. And following the war, Pittsburgh remained the largest producer of steel in the United States. It was a very, very wealthy city for uh, most of the mid-century right there, the 50s and the 60s. But then the city went through, well, actually, this was a good thing. The city went through what it was called a renaissance, beginning in 1946 when it implemented measures to clean air pollution. And this lasted until 1973 because in the 1960s, uh, steel production was still robust. But poor labor relations and uh, rapid expansion left U.S. Steel exposed to international competition by 1970. And doubtless, Jim Shooter's father was subject to a lot of these poor re labor relations on the labor side of them and might have just begun feeling the pressure of that looming recession. And 1973 is considered the watershed point, essentially, that broke the city and they went bankrupt kind of overnight. Mm-hmm. Now back to Shooter. When he was 14, he began selling stories to DC Comics, writing for both action comics and adventure comics, providing and also providing pencil breakdowns as well. Uh, Jim Shooter has uh, he's been credited with creating several characters for the Legion of Superheroes, including Karate Kid, a teenage superhero who actually predated the martial arts fad of the 1970s. As Pharaoh Lad, he's a self-sacrificing superhero who transformed into living iron. And Princess Projectra, who could cast realistic illusions. All three of these characters would debut in Adventure Comics number 346, that's cover dated July 1966. Jim Shooter also created the Sun Eater and the group of ultra-powerful villains known as the Fatal Five. Both of them debuted in Adventure Comics number 352, January 1967 cover. Over in Action Comics, he created the Parasite, the uh, Superman villain. This is in issue 340 of that title, August 1966, cover date. Uh, shooter and artist Kurt Swan devised the first race between the Flash and Superman in Superman's Race with the Flash. It's a good title. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that took place in Superman, uh, volume one, number 199. That's August 1967 cover. Uh, and these characters and teams, uh, because Shooter did pencil layouts, are solely are credits, credited solely to Jim Shooter, though it was a work-for-hire situation undisputed by him. Yeah. Uh, now, Shooter wrote the uh, first issue of Captain Action. This is October-November 1968 cover, and that was DC Comics' first toy tie-in. Now, Captain Action was this amazingly silly 12-inch doll that debuted in 1966. It was essentially a blank figure, just like a guy, like a, you know... Uh, peach-colored guy with a, just a face that could be dressed up as any number of characters, including Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, 
Captain America, Aquaman, The Phantom, The Lone Ranger, and Tonto, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Sergeant Fury, Steve Canyon, and The Green Hornet. Uh, The toy was discontinued in 1968, unfortunately, just when the comic book tie-in debuted, so that was uh, not great timing. But the line was revived in 1998 and inexplicably survives today, Chris. They have, like, lines galore. You can keep buying costumes for your Captain Action uh, figures. So, all right. I, I don't know. I guess... Where else are you going to get a 12-inch uh, Nick Fury, right? That's no, true. That's pretty much it. So. <laughs> now, uh, though Jim Shooter credits Mort Weisinger with showing him the ropes of comics writing, Weisinger was undoubtedly incredibly cruel to the teenager. Uh, in 2011, Jim remembered, Mort would call me every Thursday night right after the Batman TV show to go over whatever I delivered that week. He'd call me other times, too, whenever, but Thursday night was our regularly scheduled call. The calls mostly consisted of him bellowing at me. You freaking moron, learn to spell. What the hell is this character holding? Is that supposed to be a gun? It looks like a carrot. These layouts have to be clear, retard. When you're 14 and the big important man upon whom your family's survival depends calls you up to tell you you're an imbecile, it makes an impression. Yeah, there, there are a lot of stories of Mort Weisinger being less than Not pleasant. being a nice guy. Uh, he also, Mort would call Jim his charity case, kind of uh, sticking uh, a little salt in the wound that, yeah. that he had to support his family with those ch- paychecks. So uh, then in 1969, Tudor was accepted to New York University, actually got full scholarship to NYU and MIT. But after graduating from high school, he successfully applied for a job at Marvel Comics. In back issue number 34 from 2009, which is a great Jim Shooter resource, uh, Shooter recalled, I told Stan I wrote for DC and I wanted to write for Marvel. He said, and I quote, we don't like the writing at DC. I said, and I quote, I don't either. The people there call me their Marvel writer and they mean it as an insult. Stan thought for a few seconds and said, I'll give you 15 minutes. Now, unable to do both full-time job at Marvel and go to college, he skipped NYU and also stopped writing for DC. On his first day, Shooter caught a major error in Millie the Model that earned him a lot of accolades. Uh, His old boss, Mort Weisinger, however, wasn't as pleasant, Uh, Shooter remembers. Somehow, Mort found out that I had taken a job at Marvel. He called me at my desk that first day and proceeded to scream at me for being an ingrate. You know, after all I've done for you, retard, imbecile, idiot, blah, 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 (laughs) ho-hum. Welcome now, to the industry, kid, right? you know. <laughs> That bridge been burned. Uh, now, he worked for Marvel for three weeks, living at a YMCA, but his financial situation compelled him to return to Pittsburgh. After leaving Marvel, Shooter took up freelance work in advertising, uh, writing copy and drawing concepts, supporting himself through an assortment of menial jobs when advertising work was slim. Then, in an interview for uh, Legion of Superheroes fanzine, probably the Legion Outpost, which ran 10 issues from 72 to 81 and was the biggest one, from what I could yeah. tell, uh, led to his, again, applying for both to both Marvel and DC. In that interview, Jim learned that Mort Weisinger had retired, which probably had a lot to do with his reapplication. <laughs> uh, Jim flew to New York to interview with Roy Thomas, who offered him writing duties on Manwolf. Then Jim interviewed at DC, where publisher Carmen Infantino offered him the Legion of Superheroes, now in a new book, which was Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, and Superman. Due to being offered two properties he was familiar with, rather than one he was not, Jim opted to work for DC Comics again. 
Now, his relationships with both Superman editor Julia Schwartz and Legion editor Murray Boltinoff were unpleasant, and Schroeder claims that the two editors forced him to do a number of unnecessary rewrites. His first issue of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes was number 209, that's a June 1975 cover date, and he never did get a byline, uh, a new byline on Superman. Now, the story goes that Julie Schwartz pitched a story to Schroeder and worked out the script, which was rejected by his assistant, Bob Rizakis. Jim rewrote the script, which was rejected by his other assistant, <laughs> E. Nelson Pridwell, because he didn't like the story outright. Uh, Jim wrote a letter to Carmine Infantino complaining about getting the runaround, but it was somehow intercepted by Julie Schwartz, who wrote to Jim, Dear fellow JS, you shouldn't have sent that letter to Carmine. You will never work in this business again. <laughs> and that's that's the last we uh, heard of Jim. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, still, this didn't keep him from writing Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes until issue 224. This is the February 1977 cover dated issue uh, for Murray Boltinoff. Uh, Shooter says he may have been in the early stages of Alzheimer's at the time. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of uh, forgetfulness uh, in some of the stories with Boltinoff. We didn't go into those two, you know, you can imagine what they might be like, but he did keep writing for DC, and I think that a lot of, uh, you know, editors, despite his friction with Julie Schwartz, saw him as a reliable, Certainly. a capable writer uh, at a time when I think that was at a premium. Anyway. At a premium. Yeah. <laughs> While writing Legion, Shooter also freelance for Marvel, uh, writing whatever assignments he could basically get his hands on. In 1975, Marvel's then-editor-in-chief, Marv Wolfman, called to offer him an editorial position. So on January 2nd, 1976, Shooter joined the Marvel staff as an assistant editor and writer. Marvel's executive level did the curly shuffle in the late 1970s. We've talked a little bit about that, the editors-in-chief kind of coming and going. Uh, some of them lasting a year or less. One of them lasting like, yeah. three weeks, wasn't that? Uh, yeah, it was less than a month. It yeah. was uh, in the position before moving on. Now, because of this, in 1978, Jim Shooter succeeded Archie Goodwin to become Marvel's ninth, uh, ninth editor-in-chief. During this period, publisher Stan Lee relocated to Los Angeles, which left Shooter largely in charge of the creative decision-making at Marvel's New York City headquarters. Now, although there were complaints among some that Shooter imposed a dicta dictatorial style on the bullpen, he cured many of the procedural ills at Marvel such as uh, successfully managing to keep the line of books on schedule. So he ended the widespread practice of missed deadlines. He also added new titles and developed new talent. According to Shooter, the practice at Marvel at the time was to have the penciler, scripter, inker, and letterer pass pages back and forth during production, so that the first time the editor saw them was when they were all ready for coloring. Now, this would lead to many costly fixes and delays, as you might imagine. Yeah, that's not really the best way not to do things. Not the wisest. And then there are some great stories behind how they even tried to fix that that uh, weren't really relevant to this, but it's uh, it was really a wild time over there, Marvel. Let me tell mm -hmm. you, they really were, there was no one really steering the ship until... The wild uh, West, yeah. It really was. <laughs> now, uh, to adventuresinportaste.com in November 2017, Jim said that in January 1978, my first month, we were supposed to ship 45 colored comics. We shipped 26. What does that tell you? It took me until April to ship the correct number of comics. By the end of that year, we were on time, and we stayed on time for 10 years. If a book was supposed to come out in July, it came out in July. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Marvel enjoyed some of its best successes during Shooter's nine-year tenure as editor-in-chief, such as Chris Claremont and John Byrne's run on Uncanny X-Men. That was 1977 through 1980. Uh, Byrne's further work on the Fantastic Four, going from 81 to 86. Frank Miller's series of Daredevil stories from 79 to 82. Uh, Walt Simonson's crafting of uh, Norse mythology with the Marvel within the Marvel Universe in Thor. That was 83 through 86. Uh, also, Roger Stern's runs on both the Avengers in 82 through 87 and Amazing Spider-Man from 80 to 84. Yeah, and I'm sure we've forgotten some seminal work sure. happening at the same time. That really was, they'd say, you know, Marvel's second golden renaissance, age. Yeah. Renaissance, for sure. Uh, Jim Shooter also instituted creator royalties, starting the creator-owned imprint Epic in 1982 for partially that reason. And also put in a system for returning original art that included the penciler and inker. Uh, a much more regimented system that actually had things like receipts. Right. So can you believe it? Uh, yeah, he really implemented some crazy things, so there you go. Now, Shooter also helped to develop the direct market and the need for new comic shops by releasing market-only titles such as Dazzler Number no. 1 in 1981. Uh, the rest of the series would be available at newsstands, which is a pretty neat trick if you've got a comic book exciting enough to make readers want to go that go find that first issue. Right. Though we're talking about Dazzler, so... Right. Uh, so maybe that yeah. wasn't... The idea <laughs> is sound, though. That's the point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, other Marvel titles, such as Marvel Fanfare and Kazar, soon followed. Now, despite these achievements, Jim Shooter often found himself at odds with Marvel staff and creators. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a few of those times right now, starting with the Dark Phoenix, Phoenix Saga. And all these are according to Jim Shooter, largely. Of course. Uh, like we say, <laughs> this is his episode, so... We're taking his point of view for uh, many of these stories. Uh, this story really begins, though, with the Phoenix Saga in Uncanny X-Men number 101 through 108. That was October 76 through December 1977, cover date. That was by Chris, Chris Claremont. And uh, begun pencils began by Dave Cockrum, by the end finished by John Byrne. Uh, Jean Grey assumes the Phoenix power after repairing an alien crystal. And then she's like Jedi-level powerful, That basically from that point on. Now, the Dark Phoenix ran an issue of the X-Men, number 129 to 138. That was January to October 1980, and that was by Claremont and Byrne. And in that story, after being mind-controlled by the mastermind, Jean Grey unleashes the full extent of her Phoenix power and becomes Dark Phoenix, which is bad, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wears red, so it's bad. Exactly, and she's very dark. You know, She has a, a scowl and everything. So she shoots into space, then eats a sun that destroys a life-bearing planet in that solar system, committing actual genocide. Now, in 2011, Jim Shooter would recall, the plot indicated that Phoenix would somehow be mind-wiped and let go. Back to living at the mansion, hanging around with Storm and company, sitting at the same table for lunch, etc. That, to me, would be like taking a German army away from Hitler and and letting him uh, go back to governing Germany. Did I have a, quote, moral issue with that? Yes. More than that, it was a character issue. Would Storm sit comfortably at a dinner table with someone who had killed billions as if nothing had ever happened? Nah. I told Chris that the ending proposed in his plot didn't work. It wasn't workable with the characters, and in fact, it was a totally lame cop-out story-wise. I demanded a different ending. Chris, enraged, asked me just what that might be. I suggested that Phoenix be sent to some super-security interstellar prison as punishment for her crimes. Chris said that the X-Men would never stop trying to rescue her, and that that story would become a loop. I said that 
then he should come up with an ending. I wasn't privy to Chris and John's conversations that night, but whatever. The next morning, Chris stormed into my office and said that there was only one answer. They'd have to kill Phoenix. I said, fine. I don't think he expected me to say that, since killing characters just wasn't done in those days. Chris waffled a bit, but then I became insistent. She's dying. That's it. Right, you know, and the idea was that they wanted to create a character, and an X-Men villain that could be recurring over and over, but, uh, you know, whatever it was, obviously, Shooter couldn't let the uh, crime stand the way it was. Sure. So, uh, during a battle with Shi'ar aliens on the moon, Jean Grey sacrifices herself to stop the fighting in issue 137, September 1980, and she never is ever seen in the ever. comics ever again. No, ever. <laughs> except for very recently when yes. Marvel has relaunched a D- Dark Phoenix Volume 8 or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to talk about uh, some... <laughs> Our next bit is going to be a little bit about Howard the Duck. And again, this is coming from Jim Shooter. Mm-hmm. Now, Howard the Duck was created by Steve Gerber and would debut an Adventure into Fear number 19, this is December 1973 cover, with art by Val Mayerick. Uh, now, he's from a planet of beings that look like ducks, and he's abducted and deposited on Earth to hang out with Man-Thing, well, at least initially. Uh, he eventually had his own series that began in 1976. Uh, Disney would step in to force a redesign of the character due to his calculated similarity to their denizens of Duckburg. But that would happen before Jim Shooter showed up. Just worth mentioning either yep. way. Uh, now, there, well, there, after... there does seem to be some confusion. I did see a lot of people say that Jim Shooter handled that too, but handled that. Yeah, it didn't. It happened before his watch. So now, uh, shortly after Shooter became editor in chief, Steve Gerber was fired from Howard the Duck. First, the syndicated comic strip, and then the monthly comic. Now, there's a long, complicated story to this, but the main reason was his incredible lateness, uh, which annoyed everyone involved. Yeah, th- there are that same issue of back issues number thirty-four has. An amazingly detailed account of a lot of the back and forth with Steve Gerber and the creators, and it's mm-hmm. sort of worth reading if you want to see what it's like to make a comic in reality. The true, the true, what the truth behind comics making, but uh, that's basically what it came down to. He was late with everything. But uh, he even had that one issue, that dreaded Deadline Doom issue, yeah, of Howard, which is just such a weird book. He just he started slapping things just together. Essays. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a, it was definitely, uh, he was a left-of-center fella, I guess you could say, right, the, uh, the Steve Gerber. But uh, sometime before Jim Shooter got involved, Steve renegotiated his contract with Marvel, and that gave him complete control over Howard the Duck for as long as he was employed at Marvel. Steve didn't think that the employed at Marvel was the main <laughs> point of that, and so when the title scripting duties were given to Marv Wolfman and Mary Screenis with issue number 28 in November 1978 cover date, he was annoyed. And this is why he filed that lawsuit against Marvel on August 29, 1980. Not because he heard Marvel was shopping the character around for film licensing, which is what has often been reported. Yeah, that, that's that what is, I've heard every time. Yeah. And that is actually a falsehood because Marvel mm-hmm. never actually... Well, in a sense, all of Marvel's characters are out for licensing at all times. All the know? time, Anybody, yeah. I mean, I don't know about now with Disney, but at, at this time... You know, they were taking any offers. Come come step to the plate. So it wasn't a matter of they had to shop him. It was of someone, and that's eventually what happened. Steven Spielberg asked them, and they said, sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, as you might imagine, Steve lost the case, but he did achieve a settlement with Marvel that allowed him to write Howard the Duck again. But that didn't happen, and here's why. 
Yes, in 2011, Jim Shooter would say, The settlement offer essentially included Howard the Duck in Marvel's standard character creation incentive plan, one of the several incentive plans I had installed. It also guarantees a limited publishing program of Howard the Duck publications and specified Gerber's terms of employment. None of those terms were novel or extraordinary. They were, in fact, much the same as they'd been offered to Roy Thomas. From the point of view of Marvel's top brass, they had they had made the suit and legal expense go away for nothing. They were very pleased and unconcerned about whatever grief doing so might engender for me. So the time came to publish, and we set out to do so. Gerber delivered a script. I read it and expressed my concerns to publisher Mike Hobson and President Jim Galpin. Mike wrote Marvel's responses to Gerber and his attorney. Here they are, in part. It says, Steve Gerber is totally subject to Marvel's editorial direction in creating a Howard comic. Accordingly, he must comply with Marvel's editorial direction and control of the work product, as they are the essence of such agreement. Steve Gerber agrees that all materials he submits shall be subject to Marvel's sole, executive, and discretionary editorial control. We understand, Steve, that... That the no other work on that no other writer work on Howard during the term of our agreement, and we have no intention of engaging one. As regards how Howard will be depicted, he must be depicted in the quote same general manner as in the first issues. This is subject, of course, to the prior settlement with Disney, but this is also subject, as is the choice of artist, to Marvel's sole and discretionary editorial control. I am certain, however, that Steve's concerns are unnecessary. In fact, we are hereby accepting the Howard script Steve submitted with very minor editorial changes. Gerber refused to accept the changes offered or propose alternatives. And so, for then at least, there was no Howard book by Gerber. Yeah, and that was that. He just wouldn't make the changes as, uh, you know, directed. And that's why you never saw. He did end up writing Howard much later in the 90s and I think again in the 2000s. Because didn't he want to make it so everything that he didn't write was like a movie or something? Yeah, he wanted to wipe away and and apparently he didn't I didn't it. see the yeah. script, but apparently it was a lot of not very nice things about the people that had previously worked on the book. Uh, the writers kind of disparaged Wonderful. them, and uh, <laughs> which would have would have been his friends also. So I don't of course. But I yeah. didn't see I didn't see the script, so I don't really you know who knows how bad it was or what the story was. But sure, uh, that's that's apparently what he wanted changed. One account did have Steve insisting that Jack Kirby draw the book. Since they had worked together on Destroyer Duck, which is a book that uh, Gerber put out to for his legal defenses in the early '80s, but I got to say, Chris, that seems almost an unbelievable hill to die on, right? Like, yeah, you know, you wouldn't, you couldn't possibly expect Marvel to have given you that at that point, or really at any point. No, uh, no. or would they really have necessarily been able to if they, even if they wanted to, you know, approach Jack Kirby? So uh, that uh, I don't believe that, but I do think the other stuff he probably didn't want to make his script changes and. That was that for Howard the Duck. Now, one last story here. Uh, Roy Thomas renegotiates with Marvel. Now, Roy Thomas, uh, people don't know, he was sort of, in a sense, Marvel's first employee, or maybe Stan Lee's first employee, right? Yeah. Uh, kind of hired on and eventually became a writer because he was the only one that could write the way Stan Lee did. He was like their first editor-in-chief after Stan Lee took a bow, or he went out to be a publisher, that's what it was. Uh, and he had been at Marvel for a long time, since he was a kid. So, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, setting that, you know, in 1981, after more than two decades of freelancing for Marvel and a contractual dispute with Jim Shooter, Roy Thomas signed a three-year exclusivity writing and ed- editing contract with DC Comics. One sticking point for Roy was Shooter's new policy that Marvel staff editors 
could not also be freelance writers. Now, here's that whole thing, according to Jim Shooter, he said. Roy had written a letter dated April 10th to Marvel President Jim Galton, informing him that he had not been able to work out a new contract with me and that he was leaving Marvel. That prompted the call I got from Galton immediately thereafter. He said, among other things, that he thought I told him Roy and I had worked out a deal. What happened? What went wrong? How could I lose Roy? Do you know how important to Marvel Roy must have been for Galton to even know who he was? Galton, the same man who once asked me who Gene Colan was. Galton, who didn't know who John Byrne was, or John Buscema, or anyone else except Chris Claremont, who had an uncanny knack for running into Galton on the elevator and introduced himself. <laughs> <laughs> now, but, but Galton knew Roy, the man who had gotten us the Star Wars license, among many other things. In fact, Roy and I had worked out a new contract. On April 1, he sent me a letter which starts, Dear Jim, I'm returning the copies of the contracts you sent me. I will sign them if each of the following changes is made. The changes were few and entirely reasonable. No problem. We made them immediately. I also reassured him re regarding his concern that the staff editor, who would henceforth be responsible for overseeing the editorial work on his books, would not be summarily overruling him. That if any disagreements came up, no action would be taken without his consent. If no agreement could be reached, he had outs. It was fine by me for Roy to keep his editor credit. It wasn't about demoting Roy. It was about engineering a system that would work, that would give Marvel full advantages of his superpowers with fewer problems. But Roy had reneged. He had changed his mind. I explained all that to Galton. I suspect he thought, as many people still think to this day, that it was my fault, that I bungled it or let it drift away from business into ego wrestling or personalities. So the next morning, Galton and I were sitting in his office upstairs, waiting for Roy to arrive. Galton asked that I explain my position and some of the contentions we'd encountered. Galton had become more adamant than I was about the no-writer-editor thing by this point. Now Roy arrived. As he entered Galton's offices, he seemed taken aback that I was there. I guess he expected that going over my head was going to keep me out of it, but that wasn't Galton's style. Roy expressed his interest in continuing to work with Marvel. Galton said he was pleased and hoped we could make that happen. And again, in keeping with protocol... Galton turned the conversation over to me. I, too, said I want, that we sincerely wanted Roy to stay with Marvel and wanted things to work out. I laid out the terms we proposed. Nothing different than what we that we'd offered before, really, but I tried to reassure Roy that he and I could work together. Roy agreed to everything. He even seemed comfortable and content with having a staff editor overseeing things. So Galton said it seemed that Roy and I agreed on everything. Why didn't the two of us go downstairs and sign the contract? Roy said there was just one thing. He'd already signed an exclusive contract with DC Comics, but it had an exception uh. that allowed him to keep writing Conan. So what he wanted to now was a contract with Marvel to do the Conan books. Being exclusive at DC but working part-time for us, what message does that send? We're the losers in the Roy Thomas sweepstakes, but he's so wonderful and we're so desperate that we need to cling to any shred of him that we can get. Annoyed big time, Galton told him we weren't interested, that Roy had wasted our time and basically to get out of his office. Once Roy had been chased away, Galton told me, and this is a quote, I'll never doubt you again. That's pretty wild story wow. there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking with Shooter here, uh, in 1981, he uh, wrote the second intercompany crossover between Spider-Man and Superman that was in Marvel Treasury number 28, penciled by John Buscema. Uh, Marv Wolfman would get a co-writing credit there. 
Now, Schroeder was also the editor-in-chief during the first big comic book crossover event, the three-issue Marvel Superhero Contest of Champions, which ran from uh, June through August 1982, written by Mark Grunewald, Bill Mantlo, and Stephen Grant, and penciled by Bob Layton. Uh, in the early 80s, Jim Shooter also pitched a plan to buy DC Comics to Marvel ex- executives, something that we talked about in detail on our second-ever episode of Weird Comics History, which is waiting for you in the archives. That's right. It wasn't uploaded that long ago either, so you shouldn't have to mm-hmm. dig too far. Uh, in 1985, Jim Shooter wrote the 12-issue company crossover series Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars, running from cover dates May 1984 to April 1985, penciled by Mike Zeck and Bob Layton. Shooter recalled that Kenner, the toy company, had licensed the DC heroes, that would be the superpowers figures. Uh, Mattel had He-Man, but wanted to hedge in case superheroes became the next big fad. They were interested in Marvel's characters, but only if we staged a publishing event that would get them a lot of attention, and they could build a theme around. Fans, especially young fans, often suggested to me one big story with all the heroes and all the villains in it. So I proposed that. It flew. Mattel thought that the kids responded well to the word secret, so after a couple of working names bit the dust, we called the story Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. The comic was arguably more successful than the toy line, <laughs> uh, considering you could still buy reprints of the comic today, and you can't buy the toy line at all for Jack. Nope. Uh, by now, Jim Shooter's riding high, right? Just success after success. Totally. Uh, despite its continued friction at the office, and he decided to do something daring for Marvel's 25th anniversary. But more on that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about John Romita Jr. John Salvador Romita Jr. was born August 17th, 1956 in New York, New York. You may not believe this, but he's the son of longtime Marvel artist John Romita. Whoa! <laughs> yes! I thought it was just a coincidence. <laughs> I, I thought so, too. It's such weird hiring there. Uh, <laughs> uh, for complete sake, his mother is Valerie Bruno. Uh, He would study advertising art and design at Farmingdale State College and graduated in 1976. His earliest contribution to the comics industry was creating the Spider-Man character, The Prowler. He first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 78 as November 1969, when he was only 13 years old. Hey! Hey, it sounds like someone we just talked about. That's right, very similar to Jim Shooter. Uh, his actual career in comics started with Marvel UK, where he drew cover sketches for books and reprints. His interior debut was a six-page backup called Chaos at the Coffee Bean in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 11. That was 1977. John would become the penciler for Iron Man, being written by David Michelini. And this run would include the character-defining Demon in a Bottle story. Uh, that's Iron Man Number 128, done November 1979. That's Tony Stark, the Alki, mm-hmm. right? Indeed. Now, throughout the early 80s, Romita would do uh, work on several Marvel books, including the Spider-Man family titles and Uncanny X-Men. He claims that he and X-Men writer Chris Claremont didn't exactly see eye-to-eye creatively, which uh, (laughs) I I, I can't believe that. I don't know how that happened, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) He was the artist for the launch of the Dazzler ongoing series we just discussed. Uh, This is March 1981, though he only, and perhaps wisely, stuck around for the first couple of issues. Uh, he provided some artwork for that uh, that Marvel Superhero Contest of Champions we discussed earlier that ran from June to August 1982. And in 1986, John Jr. provided pencils for the book we're going to discuss in a bit. But That's first... Right. First, we want to tell you a little bit about the new universe, what that is, why that exists, what happened with it. Uh, so, to discuss how to capitalize on Marvel Comics' upcoming 25th anniversary... 
President Jim Galton held a meeting with Marvel's vice presidents that included Jim Shooter. He wasn't a vice president, but he was allowed. He, he did go to these meetings regularly with the vice presidents. Uh, Shooter proposed an idea similar to the later Ultimate Marvel line. The end of the Marvel to end the Marvel universe and relaunch all the titles in a remade universe which would use the same characters and story concepts as the original Marvel universe, but updated to the present era and with more realistic consequences. This idea was rejected because it was seen as meddling with a line that was already very successful. So Shooter instead proposed creating a new universe entirely, one that would supplement the Marvel universe rather than replace it. This new proposal was approved, and it was given a $120,000 budget. Now, it was to be a distinctly separate world, totally removed from the mainstream continuity of the Marvel Universe, with its own continuing characters and stories in a more realistic setting. There'd be no hidden races, no gods, no mythological beings, magic, or super technology. Uh, Superhuman characters and powers would be limited, and thus more subdued in their activities, yet their action would have more realistic consequences. Additionally, each new universe title was designed to happen in, quote, real time, where a month would elapse in between issues. Now, after a false start in which Tom DeFalco was placed in charge of the project and reportedly made little progress, Shooter conceived a line of comics. Now, the concept was fleshed out and ideas for individual series proposed at a meeting with Shooter, DeFalco, Archie Goodwin, Elliot R. Brown, John Morelli, and Mark Gruenwald. The premise behind the line of comics was that prior to July 22, 1986, the new universe was identical to the real world that we live in today. Right. Now, uh, this the new universe's first divergence from normal reality was something called the White Event. There's a strange astronomical phenomenon that occurred on July 22, 1986 at 4.22 a.m. Eastern and lasted for mere moments. It would bathe the Earth in a bright white light and caused genetic anomalies (laughs) in two out of every one million humans, which led to them developing superhuman powers. Wow. Uh, The new universe launched in July of 1986, just right when that white uh, event happened, uh, with DP7 number one, written by concept creator Mark Gruenwald and penciled by Paul Ryan. This had a November 1986 cover date, but obviously July was the month to publish, and several titles followed, such as... Justice, created by Archie Goodwin, who wrote the first issue as well. Kickers, Inc., created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Mark Hazard, Merc, created by Archie Goodwin. Also Nightmask and uh, Force, both of those created by Archie Goodwin. And Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, which was created by Elliot R. Brown and John Morelli. And finally... Starbrand number one from 1986. Hey. We are here, folks. Uh, the cover of the inaugural issue features a nice rendering of our titular blonde-haired character floating in space with the earth below and a pink moon behind him. He's got his hand outstretched towards the reader, and he's wearing the same red outfit Eddie Murphy wore for his 1983 stand-up movie, Delirious. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what he's wearing. Yes. <laughs> the New Universe banner runs across the top the same as would run for all the New Universe titles. Now, the opening splash page depicts Starbrand standing near various railroad-related accessories. He's hoisting the locomotive car of a freight train over his head. A caption reads, There is a weapon in the universe more powerful than all others. No more coveted, feared, loved, or hated thing exists. Only a fool or madman, or the right man, would dare possess the Starbrand. 
And that's also the title of our story today. Very convenient. Very good. Yes. Now, somewhere in the Laurel Mountains of Pennsylvania, Ken Connell is dirt biking. He's obviously very skilled because he knows the lingo. Oh, yeah. He thinks to himself, stay on it. Stay on it. Lay on the bars. Don't want to endo back down. Long walk back into the car. If I can still walk, better lay it down. Lay it down. Off. Off. No. I just love that Jim Shooter knows all those the lingo. I want to know. Uh, I kind of want to know the story there, but I did. I don't know. No, Ken Big dirt launches, biker Jim. I don't know. Anyway. No, Ken launches over a patch of grass or something. Uh, kind of hard to tell uh, what his problem is right here. He thinks to himself, no way. Not bad. Feet came off the pegs. Landed sloppy and hard. Ow, but okay. Where's the next hill? So that was a hill? I guess. I don't know what okay. it was. <laughs> now Ken comes to a clearing in the woods that is a smoking crater in the middle of it. Indeed, whatever made the crater made the clearing. What? What's this? What happened here? Fire? No, not just a fire. A lot of these trees look broken down. Looks like the place was bombed. Weird. Soon, at a lookout point at the top, or something. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What could have done that? An old man in a severely rumpled brown suit is scoping out Ken's dirt bike. He goes, Connell? Nope. Yamaha. Who are you? How'd you get up here? How'd I get down here is the better question. Almost didn't make it. I was followed. The kind that followed me wouldn't have been any trouble usually. They weren't much trouble anyway, but it would have been a tidier fight if I weren't on my last legs. Ken strides over to the old man who's about a head taller than him. He Mm. says, fight? You have something to do with that burnout patch along the trail? And what do you mean last legs? Are you hurt? Sick? You you don't back away. That's good. Who are you? How'd you know my name? I was hoping I'd find you here today. I wanted to give you something. Now you say no, then go, and tell someone you trust, Ken. We've talked about what you're Those supposed to do. Those are the three steps, yes. That's how you do it. <laughs> uh, Ken says, yeah, well, make it quick. We're running out of daylight. And so the old man peers closely into Ken's face, his eyes turning completely white. Okay, look here, Connell. At my eyes. In the next panel, Ken wakes up on the grass right next to his dirt bike. A lot of time has passed, he says. Huh? Morning? What am I doing here? Cold. Freezing. All wet. Dew. Was that a dream? He thinks back to the events of the last evening, which Ken apparently recalls in very, very, very great detail. Yeah, it doesn't have easy at all. Uh, The old man had explained himself to Ken. He goes, A particular interstellar phenomena. A bright flash drew my attention to this area of space. I'm glad it did. I've been looking for someone like you for a long time. Beings like you and me are a rare breed. I suppose I didn't plan this very well. You see, time is running out for me. I'm dying. If you weren't agreeable, well, I'm just glad you are. The old man rolls up his sleeve on his left hand and reveals a mark on his arm. It looked kind of like a shining star inside of a letter C, and this this would be the star brand if you hadn't guessed by now. Think of it as a tattoo. 
Just put your hand on it. I'll do the rest. Don't worry. If you don't want it on your palm, we can move it later. Didn't we read about this kind of thing in a Spider-Man Power Pack comic? I think I, I seem to I'm recall. very uncomfortable all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, yes. really. I don't like this scene at all. But <laughs> Bad touch. Now Ken <laughs> snaps back to the present and looks at his palm. And wouldn't you know it, he's got a star brand on it. Can't rub it off. It's real. No, that's crazy. Old man. Old man. We, we gotta talk, man. Where are you? And Ken starts wandering around looking for the geezer. He comes to the edge of a cliff and peers over to see a body lying at the bottom. Oh, no! Old man! Somehow, Ken leaps down the face of this cliff in what looks like just one jump. A body is lying there wearing a blue suit and smoking. It looks like a monster of some, some kind. Still, Ken identifies it as the old man. Old m- m- The old man? He wasn't even human, and he's dead. I don't believe this is happening. This thing, p- put this on my hand, and na- now he's dead. He knew he was dying. That's why he told it about, uh, me all about it so carefully. Ken remembers some sage words said by that old man the night before. In your language, it would be called the star brand. You're the perfect choice. I can't tell you how relieved I am that you have accepted it. I hope you won't regret it later. Too much. Well, I mean, if you really regret a tattoo, you can always get it covered up, depending. Yeah, laser. Exactly. There's a lot of things you can do, especially nowadays. Uh, Ken decides to bury him, and without remarking about it, uh, telekinetically peels a chunk of rock from the cliff and sticks the old man's body in the hole before replacing the chunk of rock again with his mind. Then Ken flies up the cliff face and hops on his dirt bike. So this is the guy who professionally critiqued his own dirt bike jump in his thoughts, but doesn't notice that he's uh, floating boulders. You think that would that would definitely be something he would mention, but nope. Uh, he just hops on the bike and says, Go home. Think. And then a caption reads, Hours later at the Westgate Village Apartments in a southwest suburb of Pittsburgh. Ken is now driving a red sports car, pulling the dirt bike on a trailer into a parking lot in front of a long set of white row houses. It looks like Ken's got himself a nice little uh, nice yeah, little house here. looks like it. Now, now, he rolls his dirt bike into the house and onto some cardboard in the living room. Removing it, it's very awesome, two-turn, two, the bed, removing his very awesome two-toned dirt biking suit reveals some blue jeans and a black t-shirt reading, Pit. And that refers to the University of Pittsburgh, founded in 1787 as the Pittsburgh Academy immediately after the uh, Revolutionary War. Ken sits on the couch with a can of Coke and looks at his brand new tattoo. Yeah, he thinks to himself, I could feel it. It's always warmer than the rest of my skin. And when I think about it, concentrate like now, the warmth, the warmth spreads, sort of flows, and fills up my whole body. It's like... It becomes my body, and the real me is just smoke, nothing. A template that tells my energy body what shape to take. Well, it looks like a can of Coke. Yeah, I don't know what he's drinking now that he's, uh, <laughs> what's going on. Now, Ken, Ken turns on the stove and sticks his hand in the fire to test his invulnerability, like we all do. Sure. <laughs> then he picks up the couch rather easily, jams it into the ceiling, damaging it. Next up, he grabs a dumbbell lying on the ground and crushes it to exhibit his great strength. 
He has become super klutz. Indeed. Destroy everything. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> then he finds that he can fly, and he's pretty good at it right away. Hey, that's convenient. He thinks to himself, this is the best part. I think up and go. It's, it's not like it's as though my energy body isn't subject to gravity. It goes where I want and just brings this flesh and blood along. Have it bring dessert instead next time. Right? I would agree with that. <laughs> hmm. And so Ken soars into the sky. Room. I need some room. Good thing it's dark out. It is. <laughs> I should have mentioned that to the colorist, right? Christy Skeel, yes. But yeah, it hmm. didn't look dark before. No. The next panel establishes an exterior shot of what looks like a very large squat home. And it does look like night now. I guess Christy must have gotten the message or <laughs> yes. just read that two panels ago that it was dark. It was like, oh, okay. Oops. Uh, caption reads, moments and miles later in West Mifflin. Now Ken steps into a sprawling and mostly empty home where a nebbish looking guy in an oversized yellow sweatshirt is working on a bicycle frame. Hi, Myron. Myron goes, Ken, I didn't hear your car. Myron, I flew here. Uh-huh. Look what I found by the road. Somebody threw it away. Can you imagine? Sure. It's bent almost double. It's junk. Nonsense. It just needs a little work. You're nuts, Myron. I'm nuts? You're the one that flew here. Maybe you should lie down on the couch. Yeah, it's probably under that pile of newspapers in the corner. I mean, if... <laughs> This guy's house looks like a real... I don't know what the story is, but he's like seems like a hoarder or something. Uh, Starbred, uh, Ken says, Save the therapist junk for your patients, Myron. Look, you want this frame straightened? Gimme. Ken grabs the bike frame and levitates it while straightening it out. There. And I did fly here. My word. How are you doing that? So Ken tells Myron what happened, and Myron eats it up. Of course I believe you can, at least about what you can do. You can't argue with empirical evidence. Still, I'd like to see the body. Let's go. Now? Tonight? This is important. Maybe the most important thing in history. Yeah, I know. I keep wondering if we should call the police or NASA or something. At the very least, the National Enquirer might want to give him a few bucks for the story, right? Definitely. I'd find they have a $200 uh, for any alien. Yeah. <laughs> no, Myron says they should get the evidence before approaching authorities. And then Ken goes on a monologue. He said it took courage to use the weapon. He kept calling it the weapon. It's like mind over matter, you know? I mean, you have to think it on, and I guess that'd be hard to do if you were busy wetting your pants. Anyway, so I said he should get Lion Tamer, an astronaut, somebody fearless. He said, fearlessness is the absence of reason. Would you put the deadliest weapon in existence in a thing capable of abdicating reason? No, I wouldn't. In, fi in fact, there are lots of people I wouldn't trust with this thing. Which brings me to this point. Maybe we shouldn't go public, you know? People can't want what they don't know about. You know what his last words to me were? Guard it well. Like we said, we really don't know what was in that Coke. Can, right? <laughs> really haven't uh, weird thoughts about it, but It's sure. some Irish Coke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Ken and Myron's chat is interrupted by a hail of gunfire, or maybe laser fire, or whatever it is. It shatters the window behind them and breaks apart the wall. A green guy in a silver spacesuit built like an old oil drum steps through the newly created hole. He's wielding an ugly yellow gun 
and there looks to be an uglier yellow gun on his waist. Yeah. Uh, the aggressor fires a bolt at the kitchen table, which explodes it. Also sends Ken and Myron flying. Uh, I think the table must have been made of gunpowder. It really didn't blow up. <laughs> it did. Uh, Starbird thinks to himself, another alien trying to kill me. He wants the brand. Mm, and Ken takes off out the window to lead the alien away. He says, stay down, Myron. And thinks to himself, he's got some kind of flying gear. Good. I'll lead him far away from here. What's he firing at me? Explosive bullets? Laser beams? I wonder if whatever it is could hurt me. Well, now that you mention it, uh, I think we're wondering the same thing. <laughs> kind of do. The art doesn't really show you, but okay. <laughs> uh, further thinks, huh, he probably knows all about this power. Surely he'd use a gun that would work against me. Haven't you ever heard of a random holdup? Well, Bruce Wayne has. Unless yeah. he's counting on me thinking that. Maybe he's missing deliberately, helping to scare me because he knows he can't hurt me. The old man said it took courage to wield the star brand, but not over-intellectualizing. <laughs> Should I chance it? Turn and fight? There's a good, big, deserted place to make a stand. The slag dump. Now, this is a real place known as Brown's Dump in the West Mifflin neighborhood just outside of Pittsburgh. Slag is a stony waste matter that separates from metal when it's refined or smelted. Brown's Dump would open in 1913 and closed in late 1969, leaving a mountain over 200 feet high, covering 410 acres. In 1976, they built a mall on top of it, the Century 3, which is still open today. That's nice. Uh, as Ken ducks behind some railroad cars, hoping to get the drop on this alien, the alien pulls out his other ugly gun, and now he's got one in each uh, hand, sort of. Yeah. Now, a shot from the new gun completely eradicates the railroad car Ken is hiding behind. Ken thinks to himself, oh my god, he's coming. I gotta do something. Think. Think. Throw something at him. Ken attempts to lift the wreckage left by the alien's blast, but finds it difficult. Not now! Oh, jeez, don't quit on me now! The green alien soars in and shoots the wreckage Ken is trying to lift, which wrecks it all the more. <laughs> Ken <laughs> lies groaning on the ground as his attacker approaches on some weird-looking legs. He wraps his tentacles around Ken's face and speaks. Surrender the weapon. Ken! <laughs> Listen to me. Listen to the truth. The old man deceived you. He was not dying. He is not dead. You have been duped into playing a role in an intrigue you cannot begin to comprehend. A role that will bring pain, suffering, and death to you, and universal domination to the old man and his ilk. I knew it. It's another plot by the AARP. They're always, All the time. always doing something, those uh, <laughs> senior citizens. Unless you give me the weapon. Do not force me to terminate you. Give it to me. Let it go. You are weak. I am strong. I shall protect it. I shall use it to protect the universe. I am the perfect one to possess the power of the weapon. Well, he made a pretty strong case, I admit. <laughs> Gets my vote. Yeah. He's got my vote. Uh, Ken is washed in a yellow light and black Kirby dots as he considers his current predicament. But but the old man said I was, Ken thinks to himself, so tired. Give it up? No. But he's he's pulling it away. Fight back. Fight back. Hold on to it. Don't want to lose it. Long walk home. 
Yeah, and plus, you know, the end of the universe. But, uh, you know, the, the walk is going to be a bitch for sure. What am I thinking? He's going to kill me. Better let it go. Let it go. Give up. Give up. No. A panel is nearly erased in a flash of blinding white light. Now he's got the power, and it looks like he's got Kirby Dot just coursing all through his system. He says, no way. You scared me for a minute there, but I'm okay now. How okay? Well, he picked up a train and threw it at an alien while absorbing the gun blast from his ugly gun. <laughs> I got it back together now, you know, and I'm angry. You know, that kind of anger you get right after you get over being scared to death where your heart's pounding and your adrenaline's flowing, and you feel like you could bite the heads off of wildcats, like nothing can hurt you? Yeah, we were with him and told the part about biting the heads off of wildcats? Yeah, I don't know if I ever felt that way, personally. I never... I, I wouldn't know how to deal with that. I don't even know what that feeling is like, so... No. Uh, maybe that's a Pittsburgh thing, it's I'm not sure. It's oddly specific, though, It yeah. really is, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely fearless? Maybe you don't know. Huh. Anyway, you want this power, jerk? Well, eat it! Ken, now a being more of energy than of mass, creates a massive explosion that looks nuclear in scope. And, uh, that's that, I suppose. Uh, mm. Goodbye to Alien <laughs> Guy. Uh, Myron shows up all of a sudden carrying a baseball bat. Which would be very useful in this situation. Right. Ken, you okay? What happened? It looks like an atom bomb exploded. I don't know. I got so worked up, my energy self just seemed to flow out beyond the bounds of my body. Sort of went Nova or something. I'm not sure I follow, but uh, your clothes? Burned off, I guess. No great loss. At one point, when that thing grabbed me, I uh, wet my pants. That's the world outside your window, folks. A lot of sure pants sweating going on. <laughs> we jump ahead 90 minutes later back in Whitehall. Uh, these are all actual neighborhoods in and around Pittsburgh, by the way. They really should have had provided a local map with this column book because right? he keeps naming these places like we have any, you know, any reference, but here we are. Now a frumpy woman with a terrible haircut sits in her living room of her townhouse, sipping coffee and watching the news on television. Now this would be Ken's girlfriend, uh, Ken, Ken's friend Debbie. Ken's friend, who yeah. He, yes, who he calls Debbie the Duck. Uh, Ken shows up at her door wearing a mustard-colored shirt with a collar up and a brown sports jacket. Hiya, Duck. Quack. Kenny, quack yourself. What you doing in those funny clothes? They look like... Myron's. Yeah, they don't fit him either. You can't always find the sizes you want in the trash. What happened to your clothes? Uh, I sort of lost them. And my wallet and my keys. It's a long story, Deb. I, uh... Need a place to stay tonight, okay? Sure. And Debbie pulls some blankets down from a high shelf in her linen closet. Thanks. Good old Debbie the Duck. My favorite waterfowl. Quack, quack. Debbie goes to tuck the blanket around Ken, and he's already fallen asleep. You look cold. Here, wrap yourself in this blanket while I make you some soup, Kenny. Poor baby. The next morning, Debbie gives Ken a lift to his house in Westgate Village. Ken gets inside his place and changes into the exact same clothes. Yeah, that must have been an art error. <laughs> Very weird. Uh, he thinks to himself, good old Deb. Next payday, I gotta remember to give her back the bucks you loaned me to pay the locksmith. 
Maybe I'll take her out to dinner or something, too. That reminds me. I've got a date with Barb tonight. Shoot. I have to get a new driver's license and visa card. Good thing I have a spare set of keys. Despite probably not having his new driver's license yet, Ken drives the car to a deserted back road in the Laurel Mountains and then flies away from his car after parking it. Yeah, but he What? He, I know. He, he does <laughs> think to himself. Very, this is a very Jim Shooter. Always thinking of the angles, though, because he says, <laughs> no one's around to see me. I guess it's safe to fly the rest of the way. Hmm. Ken flies up to the same cliff face where he stashed the old man's body. He peels away the rock to find... Gone. The old man's gone. The other alien was telling the truth. The alien I incinerated. What's on the floor? Clothes? And so Ken picks them up and gives them a look. Yeah, he thinks. Not the old man's. Looks like my size. Hmm. A farewell present? So long, sucker. My God, what have I gotten into? Later at the apartment of Barbara Petrovic. Uh, this is Ken's date, remember? Looks like she lives in a duplex with two kids named Lori and Bobby. She goes, is something wrong, Ken? You're so quiet. Hmm? Oh, no, Barb. I'm just a little tired. And Lori says, Mommy, may we watch Scarecrow and Mrs. King? Not tonight, Lori, dear. Time for you and Bobby to go to bed. And with that... The kids run upstairs gleefully. Well, you'd be happy, too, if you didn't have to watch Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Uh, True that. That's a really crappy show. Bobby says, Good night, Mommy. Good night, Ken. Brush your teeth and floss. Sleep tight, munchkins. Parenting is easy when you just have to holler from the bottom of some stairs, eh? Yeah, that's it, you know. Don't worry. They'll, <laughs> they'll take care of themselves, you know. Uh, then uh, Ken says, Alone at last. So, you going to tell me what's on your mind? Or am I going to have to give you a licking? This what? woman doesn't really understand punishments, does she? I don't think. No, uh, no. He says, uh, <laughs> certainly. But first, I read a poem today. Want to hear it? Roses are red. Telephones are plastic. Disco is dead. But you are fantastic. You're such a romantic. You know, dinner was great. How do you do it, Barb? Perfect home. Perfect kids. Perfect everything. And you're perfectly beautiful. And I'm all yours. So if that's what you're worried about, now you know it's safe to ask me to marry you. And uh, right here is when we throw yeah. the record scratch in. <laughs> you know? Uh, Ken says, Barb, uh, I, I don't think that... Forget I said that. Pretend I didn't say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> the last thing I want to get into tonight is a heavy discussion about our future. See, giving people the go-ahead to propose marriage is a form of greeting in her culture. That's I think so. Very simple. Total, total <laughs> mistake. It's all a cultural problem. Uh, Ken and Barbara sit on the couch to begin, quote, necking like crazed weasels per their own per their description. At least it wasn't bobcats, right? <laughs> we have wildcats. <laughs> but I, 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 just can't, I can't visualize them. I don't know what that is. Uh, Ken hears a noise upstairs and notices some movement outside. So he and Barbara run upstairs to find Lori's bed is empty and her window is wide open. Lori's okay, she's just standing around her bedroom, but she's holding one of those ugly yellow guns. Mm, Barbara is quite shocked, to the point where she goes, Lori, what are you doing out of bed? What is that? That, that, that gun? Huh? Give me that! Ken, please, it's just one of Bobby's toys. No, it's not. You never buy Bobby toy guns. He's more of a Tonka Trunks, Tonka Trucks kind of kid, yeah, though, right? Yeah, that's his thing. Uh, Barb notices that Lori's looking kind of spaced out. Lori, honey, I think she's sleepwalking. 
Ken grabs his jacket and heads right out the front door and says, Now she's not, but I know who did this to her. He's not going to get away with it. I thought he was dead, but he isn't. He's alive. The opposite of dead. Uh, now Barbara rushes to the front door to catch Ken, but by now he's already vanished. Ken flies around for a while looking for the alien, but he's got no, he has no luck. Hours later, he returns to his apartment and gets a call from Myron. Hello? Myron? Yeah, I just got in. I was at Barb's. Better look out looking for that thing that attacked us last night. No, he's not dead. I thought I saw him sort of fade away before I... You know. Yes, I'm worried, Myron. It, it tried to use Barb's little girl to get at me. Must have drugged her or hypnotized her. I don't dare turn my back on anyone. I can't get asleep. What am I going to do? I hate to worry you more, but I figured I'd better tell you that FBI men have been going door-to-door around here asking questions. They were very curious about the broken windows and other damage. Of course I didn't tell them anything. I'm even calling from a payphone in case my line is tapped. I've been thinking about this thing, and I'm really getting concerned, Ken, about your safety and the effect this business could have on the whole world. We'll talk more tomorrow. Till then, don't do anything, okay? It's interesting to note that this conversation is told in two panels, and we only get dialogue from the person that we can see. It's a pretty neat uh, cinematic way to handle uh, this in a comic. Yeah, normally you would have seen a split panel or something. Would have Going seen bouncing it. back to forth with bubbles, yeah. Yeah, the bubbles would have been like jagged bubbles coming out to show the other side of the conversation, but this is something you might see in a movie, and that was definitely... One of Jim Shooter's ideas was he, he didn't want to have any action that couldn't be seen by he didn't want to have any omniscient narrators in his story. Yeah. So uh Debbie the Duck shows up at Ken's apartment and walks right in the front door while simultaneously knocking. And I really hate when people do that, I gotta say. That's the worst, I isn't really it? <laughs> Kenny, you alone? Yeah. I've been trying to call you all day. I just came to leave a note on your door. When I called John Eberhardt this morning, he's, he said, if you didn't come to work tomorrow, you shouldn't come in ever again. Debbie steps closer and clutches Ken's arm. What, what's wrong, Kenny? Is it something with Bob? No, but I probably screwed that up, too. I wish I could make whatever it is all better. Hey, you always have me, you know. Hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Kids couldn't tell, buddy. Uh, Debbie notices that the ugly gun is sitting on Ken's couch. Hey, what's this? Ken jumps up and grabs the gun while shoving Debbie aside violently and says, Don't touch that! What are you trying to do? Ow! You knocked the breath out of me. Look, I'm sorry if... He's doing it to me again, making me afraid, tying my insides up in knots. Kenny, I didn't mean to. Uh, Ken kisses Debbie on the cheek, so of course all's forgiven. You know, he's a rakish sort. Uh, He says, shh, Debbie Duck, it's all right now. I'm all right now. You made me realize something important. Sorry if I hurt you. I'll make it up to you, I swear. You'd better go now. Ken hustles Debbie out of the place uh, for what he, we're betting is not the first time. Seems like he knows Uh, what he's doing here. Yeah, get her out. (laughs) You sure everything's okay? You're not mad at me or nothing? Duck, you just helped me more than I can tell you. Thanks. I love you, babe. But... Trust me. Everything's fine now. Good night. And the next day, Ken goes to work at McMullen and Zare, VW, and Dormont. 
Uh, there's currently a Volkswagen dealer on Liberty Ave in the Dormont neighborhood, but we couldn't confirm that this is the you know actual place that exists or existed. Or existed, but I, I suppose we could call. I could try. Maybe I say you know that's a very old school. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, we should go to the operator. Uh, Ken, <laughs> Ken is buffing the hood of a car. Quit in time, Ken. Man, you busted up today. You must like this job. Just like being around you, John. You're okay for a fat guy. Yeah. Well, how about running your skinny butt up to the roof lot and bringing my car down? I'd do it my own self, but them stairs is hard for us fat guys. On my way. And then John steps outside and finds his car is already there waiting for him. Well, I'll be. That's my car. I didn't even hear Kenny pull up. Hey, wait a minute. I never even gave him the keys. The doors are still locked, and the engine's still cold. How the devil? Oh, well, guess I'm too fat to figure it out. Those fat guys can't think. Uh, now, uh, later on, Ken has the clothes he found in that cliffside laid out on his bed. He thinks to himself, the clothes the old man left me look just like what I was wearing when I met him. But somehow, I know this stuff is a lot more durable. He must have seen the Ralph Lauren labels, huh? <laughs> How? Did he sleep teach me that too, subconsciously? And what else did he stick into my brain? Am I part of some intrigue of his, like it or not? What's his plan? Why did he lie to me? Why did... Forget it. Who knows? Who cares? I'll think about it later. I know what I've got to do for now. Makes sense to wear these clothes if I expect to get in a fight. Tonight, I expect to get into a fight. Ken puts on his new duds, and in the air around him, crackles with energy. Uh, he takes off and looks for that alien that leaves, uh, you know, those has been leaving those ugly guns lying around everywhere. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't you know it, Ken finds him where this whole thing began, hanging out under a tree in the Laurel Mountains. A silvery domed ship is rising from the ground. Yeah, he comes down and says, I've been flying around this area looking for, all around this area looking for you. I was hoping I'd run into you. This area seemed like a good bet. I saw the ship. I assume it's a spaceship. Rising out of the ground. The alien fires on Ken, but it has no effect. Neat trick. Great for hiding stuff. Can you do that too, personally? I mean, sink into the ground? Is that how you avoided being fried by the old man up here? And me at the slag dump? Jeez, man, one question at a time. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Ken crushes the ugly gun in his possession with the, before the creature, causing a bright explosion. The alien cowers and pulls another ugly yellow gun from an ugly yellow rack that is full of other ugly yellow guns. Yeah, they really have a theme with their uh, yes. weaponry here. <laughs> it's an arsenal of ugly. <laughs> How do you do that sinking into the ground stuff? Maybe you should do it now, huh? But nah. Now that I'm onto you, you'd know I'd find a way to come after you, don't you? More guns won't help. No way. The alien fires again, and Ken is still unharmed. Ken grabs the alien by some straps and talks face-to-face -face with the guy. I got it together now, you know. It's time for, this time for good, and I'm angry. I'm kind of angry when you're sick to death of being hounded and harassed. I've had it with you. Get off my planet. Ken chucks him into a spaceship, which then takes off from the wooded mountainside. Then Ken has some final words for the final panel. Whether he meant to or not, the old man picked the right man. I've got the power, and I'm going to keep it. If I have to kick every butt in the universe. 
caption at the end reads, Only the beginning. But that's not only, well, I guess that is only the beginning of the <laughs> next half of our show, where we will go back into uh, the rest of Jim Shooter's illustrious career, talk a little bit about his uh, editorial philosophy, talk a little bit about the new universe and John Romita Jr. and uh, whatever else comes to mind. One of the books that you wrote that I really enjoyed of the new universe was Starbrand. Right. And John Romita Jr. did the, uh, yeah. the artwork for that. So, um... Tell me about putting that together when the decision was made, I'm going to create a new universe, a new offshoot of the Marvel Universe, a completely separate universe. Yeah, well, there were the, the thing is, when, a couple of years before Marvel's 25th anniversary was coming up, uh, we had a, a, a meeting, all the executive staff had a meeting, vice presidents had a meeting, and the president, and uh, to, to talk about what are we going to do about our 25th anniversary. And some things were discussed and proposed. And I, I suggested, I said, well, if it's, if it's to celebrate the creation of a universe, what about we create another one, you know, the new universe? And everybody liked that. And so I had a very big budget to do development, uh, I think a quarter million dollars just to do development. And I had uh, a promotion budget and, and I had uh, a, a budget to pay people guaranteed royalties because how are you going to get a guy to take a, to leave like Thor and come and work on something new that's risky? Who knows if right. it's going to be a hit or not? And uh, uh, if you can't sort of guarantee them that they're going to not lose any income while they try it, so uh, I had guaranteed royalties. I had you know lots of uh, other uh, things. And uh, and then at that point, um, the Cadence Board of Directors uh, took the company private. So the Marvel and its parent company, Cadence Industries, was owned by six guys. And Marvel was doing really, really well. And so these six guys who owned us decided to cash in. And they wanted to sell the company. And the minute you're trying to sell a company, you don't want to invest anymore. Right. Yeah. And so the president of the company called me up to his office and he said, um, he said, this budget you have, he says, uh, how much of it have you spent? And I, I said, I don't know, some tens of thousands of dollars. And he said, don't spend anymore. And welcome back. Yeah. We just did our star branding, so let's find out what happened to Starbrand as well as the universe he came in on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, just as Shooter and Marvel prepared to market the new universe, Marvel's parent company, Cadence Industries, was priming to sell the company. So they had to cut costs and slash budgets. So that uh, budget we talked about for the new universe was uh -huh. slashed from 120000 in half to 60000 Wow. <laughs> now, as you might imagine, this made it a bit difficult for these titles to attract top-tier talent, top creators, not to slight who worked on them, but you know what we're saying. Right. Now, uh, Jim thought he was very lucky that rising star John Romita Jr. and veteran inker Al Williamson volunteered to work on Star Brand for him. Yeah, and you got to think, well, there's six or seven titles right in the beginning. Yeah. So that's less than 10 grand a piece. Like, these guys really did take quite a cut. That's why I think we see a lot of uh, editors doing the writing on the original issues. They didn't take sure. any, any pay for it. Uh, working with greener creators, of course, uh, and breaking with the no editor writers will cause delays. And remember, this was time for release on Marvel's 25th anniversary. As a result, many of the comics suffered from miscommunication and poor artwork and plotting, and the issues following many inaugural number ones were not that great. 
Nor notice the fans of the new universe deliver on their world outside your window promise. <laughs> For instance, Justice was about an alien knight sent to our planet by his enemies, so he battles supervillains. I guess it all depends on what windows you're looking out of. Huh? Really? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, many titles in the new universe line lasted 12 and 13 issues. DP7, Justice, and Cyforce lasted 32 issues, though they went through several creative changes and story upheavals throughout. Starbrand would last 19 issues. The writing picked up uh, by Carrie Bates for issues 8 and 9, and then George Carragon on number 10 before it was renamed The Starbrand and continued to the end with John Byrne as writer and penciler. Because after completing issue 7, Jim Shooter quit working for Marvel, or Marvel fired him. Or both, or neither. It depends on who you ask, when you ask it. Yeah, but of course, since this is you know Jim Shooter's episode, we're going to let him explain it in his own sure. words once again. In 2000, Jim Shooter explained to CBR.com, when Marvel was being bought and sold, all the owners, the really upstairs management became short-sighted. All they were interested in was getting some money in their pockets and getting the hell out. They're not thinking about the future. Meanwhile, people like me, the artists, everybody downstairs, this is our future. So the people who own the company were selling us down the river. For instance, they were doing anything to put a few more pennies on the bottom line for their multi- multiple when they sold the company. Doing things like canceling our health insurance plan. We had a nice one before. Getting this cheap, useless thing with a high deductible. So they got rid of our retirement plan, our pension plan. Anything to save a couple bucks. I was sort of the highest ranking officer who was not an owner, and I owned some shares of stocks, but I was not an owner. Uh, the board of directors took Cadence private. I'd owned some stock up to that point, but these seven guys were looking out for themselves and screw everyone else. Marvel president Jim Galton was one of them. They're doing things that damage things for people who stayed there, for whom this was a career. So I started getting in fights with these people. I went from the fair-haired boy to being at war with them. They kept telling me, shut up, play along, do what you're told, and help us rape these people. And you'll be rich. Not those exact words, but that's what they were saying. Be a good executive, make your loyalty to us, and not these smelly artists. Then you're going to do fine. Why do you keep resisting? I'd go upstairs and get into these screaming fights with them, jumping up and down literally. They wanted to retroactively eliminate the royalty program. I said, what? They'd be class action suit like you wouldn't believe. I'll leave here and straight to my lawyer, and you're going to get your ass sued. We got into that kind of fighting. It was no lo- I was no longer the fair-haired boy. I had no more authority around there than the janitor did. They did everything to undercut and screw me over. By the time I was done there, my own people hated me. I tell you what, I walked around there about a week before I left. I've been spending all my time fighting with the upstairs people and going through this hell. I'm walking around my floor, had about 75 people working under me, and I kept seeing me people saying to myself, I don't know what that is. I don't know who that is. I don't know that guy's name. I was a ghost. People had quickly learned that if you were on my side, you wouldn't get a raise. If you said bad things about me, everybody loves you. And by the time they got rid of me, the staff had thrown a party. Indeed, in 1987, John Byrne held a party at his home where they burned Jim Shooter in effigy. That's right. I believe there's video. You can find of this. That's uh... classy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, Byrne wasn't done with them yet. Uh, (laughs) Other Byrne snipes include him destroying Pittsburgh when he took over Starbrand with issue 11. And he uses a villain named Sunspot in uh, issue number five of Legends. 
That's a DC book, March 1987 cover date. A megalomaniac. That's a dead ringer from Jim Shooter. And Guy Gardner beats him up. Yeah. Now, so if they did get rid of him, it looks like Jim Shooter was fired. But it also seems like he wasn't giving them, you know, any give any great reason to keep him around toward the end. There. Right. It seems like a mutually agreed upon firing. Let's yeah. Say. Yeah, now there are other sides to the story of Jim Shooter's time at Marvel, uh, most of which are easy to find on the comic sites, blogs. Uh, they're just uh, a finger length away. Yeah. Uh, now, this is Jim Shooter's story, and we are telling it mostly from his perspective. But before we get back into him, let's wrap up uh, on Mr. Ramita Jr. Yeah, uh, John Ramita Jr. joined Anne Nascenti on Daredevil with issue number 250. That was a January 1988 cover date where he'd remain for two years, leaving after issue 282 in July 1990 cover. Cook created the Nascenti pet character Typhoid Mary during this run. He did various projects at Marvel, including stints on Wolverine, Namor, The Punisher, Family of Titles, a brief return to Iron Man for Armor Wars 2, and the Cable 2-issue limited series before returning to Uncanny X-Men. By this time, Claremont had left Marvel, and John Jr. was excited to work with then-writer, new writer, Scott Lobdell. Uh, starting with Uncanny X-Men number 300, May 1993 cover date. Also in 1993, Ramita drew the Frank Miller pen Daredevil, The Man Without Fear mini- miniseries, revisiting and redefining Daredevil's origin. This was originally envis- envisioned as a 64-page graphic novel, and Ramita had to flesh it out to fit a five-issue, 144 pages in total limited series. Now, in 1994, he drew the Marvel DC prestige format crossover, Punisher and Batman, Deadly Knights. It's weird to see the Punisher's name come before Batman, it even really, if it was yeah. published by Marvel. It's true, you know? yeah. um, now, he penciled the uh, Dan Jurgens written Thor series that came out uh, during the Heroes Return era of Marvel. He was part of that lamentable uh, Burn Mackey reboot of Spider Man in January 1999. Yeah. He handled pencil duty for Peter Parker's Spider Man Volume 2. Thankfully, a couple of horrible years later, uh, J. Michael Straczynski and Paul <laughs> Jenkins would arrive to write that ship, at which time Romita would jump over from Peter Parker to Amazing Spider-Man, and he joined with issue number 30 of Volume 2. That was June uh, 2001 cover. Uh, a few issues into his run, he drew the famous black-covered issue of Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man. This is Volume 2, number 36, December 2001, which was written in tribute to the victims of 9-11. Also, during the this is uh, during the Jemison Casada transition of Marvel, uh, Ramita Jr. would work with Bruce Jones in shaping the Incredible Hulk's new status quo. Another character still recovering from a burn reboot of his own, oddly mm, enough. Strange like that. Mm. Uh, John Ramita Jr. also had creator-owned Image Comics series called The Gray Area. Uh, three issues from June to October 2004 covers. He claimed in a 2004 comic book resources interview that Marvel actually suggested Ramita take his idea to Image, which I suppose we could read into that a few ways if we wanted to, you know. uh, (laughs) uh, We'll leave it there, I guess. Worked with Mark Millar on a a fairly acclaimed run of Wolverine, including the Enemy of the State and Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story arcs. Keeping with Mark Miller, Ramita provided art for the creator-owned Marvel icon series Kick-Ass which has got on to be something you might have heard of, right? Uh, mm. I think there might have been a small movie, a independent movie or two that yes. came out. <laughs> He's credited as producer of the 2010 feature film and directed an animated flashback sequence in the movie. Uh, drew Greg, He drew the Greg Pak Pen World War Hulk event miniseries, reintroducing the Hulk to the Marvel Universe after a prolonged absence. 
In the lead-up to Civil War, the less terrible one, the Hulk was jettisoned into space. This would lead to the Planet Hulk status quo for that title. He drew much of the volume four of The Avengers, written by Brian Michael Bendis, would take some of the rotating art chores on the Avengers vs. X-Men event of 2012. Now, he's currently working exclusively for DC Comics, having arrived with much fanfare for a Jeff Johns penned arc on Superman Volume 3, starting with issue number 32 of the title, cover dated August 2014. Now, the announcements for John Jr.'s arrival were similar to those DC would run back in the early 70s when Jack Kirby made the jump from Marvel. Now, since his arrival, John Jr. has gone on to write an issue of Superman that was Volume 3, Number 40, June 9, uh, 2015 cover date. Also had a month of variant covers dedicated to his work. And he provided pencil art for the Scott Snyder-written All-Star Batman in the post-Rebirth DC Universe. <laughs> Along with Dan Abnett, John will be producing The Silencer for DC's new era of superheroes that spin out of Dark Knight's Metal event. It has also been reported that he'll be providing art for an upcoming Superman Year One graphic novel, which is being written by a, an old collaborator of his, Frank Miller. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't even know about that. Sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, now, he's uh, he's won or at least been nominated for a lot of awards. We'll go through some of those now. In uh, 1980, he was nominated for the Eagle Award for Favorite Comic Book Cover. This would have been the cover for Iron Man number 128, the Demon in the Bottle, uh, in November 1979 cover. Uh, in 1980, he would win an Eagle for that same story uh, as a favorite comic book story. Just not the cover, the interior. No. All right. Uh, he got the 1994 Inkpot Award. He was nominated for the 2002 National Comics Award for the Best Artist in Comics Today Now. I uh, received an Eisner Award in 2002 for Best Serialized Story. This was Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, 30-35, Coming Home, written by J. Michael Straczynski. In 2006, he was nominated for an Eagle Award for Favorite Comic Story, and that was Wolverine Volume 2, Issues 20 to 25. This is the Mark Miller-written Enemy of the State. Uh, in 2012, he was nominated for another Eagle Award. This one was Favorite Comics-Related Book, and it was for the Marvel art of John Romita Jr. And, and that's where we're going to leave him. That <laughs> right up to today, but uh, let's uh, head right back into our pal James. Yes. Uh, now, in 1988, former editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, Jim Shooter, uh, Stephen J. Mazarski, and a group of investors attempted to actually purchase Marvel Entertainment. They submitted the second-highest bid, with financier uh, Ronald Perlman submitting the highest bid and eventually acquiring Marvel. Wow. Yes. Imagine, you know, we'll talk about what mm -hmm. might have been, but anyway. <laughs> I know it. Now, uh, Shooter and Masarski instead formed Voyager Communications in 1989 with significant venture capital financing from Triumph Capital. Uh, they began to publish comic books under the Valiant Comics banner. Valiant entered the market in 1989 with comics based on Nintendo and WWF licensed characters. Two years later, Valiant entered the superhero market with the relaunch of the Gold Key Comics character, Magnus Robot Fighter. Shooter brought many of Marvel's creators over to Valiant, including Bob Layton and Barry Windsor Smith, as well as industry veterans such as Don Perlin. Valiant also took in raw talent and taught them how to make comics Valiant style, launching many careers, notably Joe Casadas. In 1992, Valiant released its first set of original titles, including Harbinger, Exo Manowar, Rye and Shadow Man, followed by a crossover event called Unity, during which Eternal Warrior and Archer and Armstrong were launched. Sometimes Shooter was required to fill in his penciler on various books, and that he wrote and/or oversaw as editor. 
During his period at Valiant's publisher, money and talent were often at a premium, and Shooter was occasionally forced to pencil stories. To conceal the fact, he drew under the pseudonym of Paul Credick, which is the name of his brother-in-law. Now, Valiant comic book Harbinger Number 1 was listed on the top 10 list of Wizard Magazine for a record eight consecutive months and was eventually named Collectible of the Decade. It's actually a book I've never seen in the wild. Wow. Uh, in the aftermarket, anyway. Now, while uh, Rye Number 0 appeared on Wizard's top 10 list for a new record nine consecutive months... In 1992, Valiant won the best publisher under 5% market share from comic distributor Diamond. The next year, Valiant won best publisher over 5% market share, becoming the only publisher outside of Marvel and DC to do so. In uh, 1992, Valiant's editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter, was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by Diamond Distributors for co-creating the Valiant universe. This is a ceremony that also honored Stan Lee and Bob Overstreet, no less. So a pretty big deal. Really? I mean, it's like titans, uh, anyway. Absolutely. Now, uh, despite all of these accolades and measures of success, Jim Shooter left Valiant by the end of 1992. His one-time partner, Stephen Mazarski, said Jim had a different idea as to the direction of the company, and he was asked to leave. But, of course, Jim Shooter has a little bit of a different story, and this is from an interview with Comics Bolton in 2014. He said... So I would be there at the crack of dawn every day, and I would be there when I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. I went 400 days in a row at one point and did nothing but sleep and work and have a sandwich on the run. I didn't get my hair cut. I didn't have time to get a haircut. My hair got long. I had to wear a baseball cap to keep it out of my eyes. People would laugh. They'd say, well, what'd you do for Christmas? I worked all day. I was in the office. So were 14 other people, by the way. I worked Christmas and Thanksgiving. Everything. It just went on and on and on, and finally, we fought our way out of it. We started to make money. Money was rolling over the gunwales. Two million dollars pre-tax a month. And then, of course, the evil bankers and lawyers stole it from me. It was a white-collar crime. I mean, it involved falsifying documents and lying under oath. It was definitely a criminal action, but they got away with it. And not only that, my partner Mazarski got married to the banker. I remember that just after we started out, it was a couple of days before Christmas, and he says, I want to tell you something. What's that? I'm dating Melanie. What? You're what? I'm dating Melanie. And they ended up becoming a couple, and of course, between them, they had a controlling interest. Originally, the three operating partners, Mazarski, a guy named Winston Fox, and me, owned 60%, and the investors owned 40 Well, once Mazarski went over to her side... It was 60-40 the other way. And, of course, he's literally in bed with her. (laughs) I find myself doing Nintendo comics, which I can do. I can do whatever you want, whatever you need. Anyway, all those things failed, and we ended up deeply in debt. We've way exhausted our original stake. Now that means we're technically in default. So that the investors, the venture capital company, obviously, they're doling out dollars day by day to keep us afloat, so we turn it around. But that means they also control everything. We were doing things like having an, having to account for every hour of every person on staff, fill out charts and forms, and anybody who didn't do enough work to justify their salary had to be cut. Well, I was there 18 hours a day, so what happened was that even though I was the highest paid guy, I would always outdo my quota by double or triple. So what I would do is I would take work that I did and pretend that other people did it. You see credits for Bob Layton, editor. Nah. You'll see coloring by so-and-so. Nah, it was me. Spreading credit for my over-quota work around so that everyone could keep their jobs. Things like that were just to keep everybody employed until we turned it around. 
But then we did turn it around, and I thought, hey, we made it. But as soon as we made it, then they wanted to cash out, and that involved getting rid of me. So I was gotten rid of, and ended up with a tiny little settlement that wasn't enough to pay for my lawyer. Yeesh. Yes. From here, a Shooter and several of his co-workers went on to found Defiant Comics. This was in early 1993. Jim formed a business venture with the River Group to help finance Defiant. In early 1993, Defiant announced that its first title, Plasm, would be released as a series of trading cards that could be put together in, order, in an album in order to form an issue number zero. Upon hearing this news, Marvel Comics threatened a lawsuit against Defiant, claiming the new title violated a Marvel UK trademark for their book character Plasmer. <laughs> now, though Defiant changed the title to Warriors of Plasm, Marvel continued its lawsuit. While the court eventually ruled in favor of Defiant, the legal process depleted the company's capital, having cost over $300,000 in legal fees. Valiant would cease publication in summer of 1995. Wow, not even two years. Yikes, yeah. Uh, that same year, though, Juice Shooter founded Broadway Comics, which was an offshoot of Broadway Video, the production company that produces Saturday Night Live. Broadway Comics debuted with the preview comic Powers That Be, followed by the series Starseed, Fatal, and Shadow State. Other series were to follow, though only Nights on Broadway was launched before the company abruptly closed, leaving unfinished story arcs in all series but Fatal. In 1996, Broadway Video Entertainment was sold to Golden Books, which then promptly went bankrupt. Yikes. Broadway Comics didn't have the infrastructure or means to continue, so that was one year. <laughs> this all feels so, so snake-bit. It does, yeah. <laughs> now, Shooterood returned to Valiant, which was now being called Acclaim Comics. As briefly, in 1999, he uh, came to write Unity 2000. Acclaim folded after the completion of only three of the planned six issues. In 2005, former Marvel Comics letterer Denise Wall approached Shooter to create Seven, a series based on the Kabbalah. Kabbalah is, you know, some some, some con- concepts are too complex to be fully explored in a comic book podcast. Yeah. So we'll just call it uh, Jewish mysticism, and we'll leave it there. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people that would tell us how wrong we are, but let's just say that's what it is, and that's all. For, it's good enough for a comic. Yeah. Uh, now, despite a big marketing campaign at 2007's New York Comic Con that promised seven issues, television and film projects, uh, video games, blogs, interactive Q&A, animation, trading cards, apparel, accessories, and school supplies— 10,000 copies of one issue were printed, as well as at a promotional ash can for issue two. So, I don't think that really panned out. (laughs) In September 2007, DC Comics announced that Shooter would be the new writer of the Legion of Superheroes Volume 5 series, beginning with issue number 37, February 2008, cover date, drawn by Francis Manipool. His run on the series ended with issue 49, February 2009, cover, one issue before the book was canceled. Yeah, it was the last. The last issue was written by someone named Justin Time. Oh, well. And it's it's panned as one of the worst books of the decade. Well, I'm gonna have to get my hands on it then. Now, now, <laughs> now you've interested me. I've whetted your appetite. Uh, yeah, I haven't read this uh, volume of Legion, but I tell you, I want to check it out now. Because um, especially also, I saw some Manipul art in it too. It looked pretty. Oh yeah, pretty Very early Great stuff. Um, Shooter was hired by Valiant Entertainment, a company that brought Valiant intellectual property in a bankruptcy auction of Acclaim Entertainment to write from the end of 2008 into the summer of 2009. Into July 2009, Dark Horse Comics announced at the San Diego Comic-Con that Shooter would oversee the publication of new series based on Gold Key Comics characters 
from the Silver Age of comic books, such as Turok, Dr. Solar, and Magnus, the robot fighter, and write some of them as well. This led to a very complicated lawsuit while that while revealing Jim Shooter was secretly editor-in-chief of Valiant during this time, from 2008-2009, it alleged Shooter had, been, had sold ideas to Dark Horse that had been promised to Valiant in a newly relaunched line that Jim was going to be the publisher of. Oh, yeah. Wow, like, but, and whatever happened there, I'm telling you folks, I, I looked through a lot of documents, <laughs> they dropped the lawsuit in 2010, so that's mm-hmm. done with. Now today, Jim Shooter still makes plenty of convention appearances, and he's still plenty outspoken in his interviews. Uh, He's the editor-in-chief of Illustrated Media, a company in New Jersey that makes custom comics. Uh, They're the ones who made the Kabbalah ones, for instance, or the Kabbalah one and a half. Right. Uh, (laughs) And speaking of awards here, we'll go into that. Jim won the 1979 Eagle Award for Best Continuing Story with George Perez, Sal Buscema, and David Wenzel for Avengers issues 167, 68, 170 through 177. He also won the 1980 Inkpot Award. Right, and he's also the something like the ambassador for Inkpot, Inkpot now, something like this. Oh, okay. I'm not sure what that means, what that entails, but he is whatever that is. Uh, yeah, so that's that really is the story of Jim Shooter. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about his editorial philosophy here, or at least it was as he... Laid it out in 1982 in a document that we only really have a part of here, but we'll uh, read as much as we got. Uh, while Marvel editor-in-chief in 1982, Shooter detailed what he considered the necessary qualities for a good comic book story. Number one, the characters must be introduced. Two, their situation must be established. Three, the conflict must be introduced. Four, suspense must be built. Five, a climax must be reached. Six, a resolution must be achieved. He says, when I evaluate a story, should one of the essential elements listed above be missing, say, the characters are not introduced properly when they're brought on stage, I immediately suspect that the author of the story knoweth not what they're, what he's doing. <laughs> Second, I look for how well the story is told. Is the conflict worthwhile? Is the climax exciting? Is the re- resolution satisfying? Is the plot good? Are there interesting twists and turns? Is there a theme? Is there character development? Is it dramatic? Is it entertaining? This is the really important stuff. It should go without saying that a writer or a prospective writer should know enough to meet the fundamental requirements of a story. It's the power and the passion and drama and characterization that I really look for. And it's usually what the reader looks for, too, yeah. I would say, Chris. Uh, we need a guy like this in uh, in our lives again. I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name any titles, but there are books <laughs> I am currently reviewing for the Weird Science uh, DC Comics website that already fail on the first three. The, the very Same first here. thing: the characters <laughs> must be introduced. I mean, this is something I see all the time. Uh, oh, yeah. You go through a whole book of uh, characters, you don't know who they are. What you know. They're not what like the motivation or what side they're on. Yeah, I, I, I would I would just take their names sometimes. You know, like, who, who <laughs> is this go. person? What is the relationship? Uh, you see this a lot, and uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I don't, you know, that's it's kind of come together. Writing for the page, and so it's a lot of different it's, things. Oh, definitely, that's yeah. one part. A lot of green editors out there, but uh, mm-hmm. these are these are some basics that I think when they're applied, you get a better comic book, and you know. Sure. Shooter comes from a time that he was juggling, uh, you know, a burgeoning direct market and newsstand sales. Uh, newsstand sales are no longer a consideration, so 
a lot of these errors are not as much considerations, right? You know, like they always they feel like they'll always be able to go back, fix it in the trade, in the trade or they in can, the digital, yeah. They can, yeah, or the digital, you can just re-upload it. That can change like while you're sleeping or whatever. Uh, and then you know, it doesn't matter how late it comes out. Um, but I gotta say, I got a lot of respect for this fella, Jim Shooter. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. But you and I have both talked about it. And we wanted to do a bio on him for a long time because. I feel like his story is very misunderstood, and I think it's told, I think from a valid perspective, from the creative perspective, uh, but there's the other But only side. one perspective. That's yeah. only one perspective, and comics, to this day, this, this is a commercial form of art. You know, there are other ways to go about doing art if you want to do your, follow your bliss. <laughs> Drawing Spider-Man is not the best way to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would. That's what that would be my thinking about it. You know, if I want to, if I want to express my heart and soul and and pour my time into something, it's not going to be Spider-Man. You know, like that. Sure. That's because I felt like I think Spider-Man's cool, and I want to be the guy that that drew him or wrote him. Uh, but you know, you you have your own thoughts on it, of course. Yeah, yeah. He, um, like we see today, like you, you said, we've got like green editors and there's superstar writers, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the editorial is busy circling wagons, worrying about protecting the interests of the creators rather than the interests of the people who are paying the creators, right. or even That's, the characters, you know, even even the, the, yeah, oh, of course, properties. well, the character you know, goes yeah. without saying. That's, <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, they, we we spent you know five years with a. Uh, with a Carol Danvers, Miss Marvel, who would go panel to panel with long hair, short hair, long hair, short hair. Nobody knew what she looked yeah. like. I mean, we, we, that's uh, right. I mean, it's not even like a mole on her chin, on her cheek or something. It's, this is, this very drastically changes the appearance of a character and nobody knew which one it was from panel to panel. And, you know, they, there's, there's this impetus to, to, you know, have characters, you know, change their clothes all the time and make things mm-hmm. more realistic. And that's swell. If you got the drawing chops to if you've got the chops. pull it off, if you don't, you might as well Shaggy and Scooby do it because mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like I'd rather be visually be able to identify someone at a glance than have to like peer into someone's soul and be like, oh, that's supposed to be you know this character. Uh, yeah, it, we're, and we're not even talking about really story content. No. Base, basic comics making, basic storytelling. Yeah. A lot of it's missing. One thing about about Shooter that I think was very telling. Uh, that we that we read was that when he first got to Marvel for the first those first ten months where he got the books out on time, he says he didn't read one book. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't open it. He he knew if he opened a book or looked at you know some artwork, he would want to fix something. He'd start dissecting. And yeah. they they didn't have the luxury to do that. And uh, again, that was a time when you had to make newsstand sales, which is amazing that Marvel even lasted as long as it did in kind of a nebulous editorial state, not doing that. Sure. Uh, I guess that's just a testament to how popular their comics were, but you got to make that thing. Now, it's not as important, again, because of the direct market. However, like you mentioned, I can't help but feel as a single-issue reader that I'm like a, a second, third consideration. For, you know what I mean? I'm oh, like, yeah. Like last in the barrel, and it's like, well, are, are we the guys keeping this afloat or not? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, if we're not, stop doing it. You know, yeah, it's not it's not that I need to hear I need it's not that I need to read Wolverine and his razor sharp adamantium claws and healing factor in a right. caption every issue. But 
but definitely, you know, you know, it's it's so trite, but you know, that whole every issue is somebody's first, even though that's probably not true anymore. I think you still need to keep that in the back of your head when you're doing this. And uh, if the writer isn't doing it, then the editor or editor in chief uh, needs to step in and and look out for the reader. Look yeah. out for. Uh, I've I've used this uh, I've used this example like every time Shooter comes up, it's. You know, Wolverine had a miniseries, so they wrote him out of the X-Men. Right. He actually, there was a there was a scene in an issue of X-Men where he's like, I got to go to Japan for a couple of months. Okay, see ya. Right. And he didn't appear in X-Men for the duration of his of his miniseries. Uh, that's something we didn't really even get into was his uh, such adherence to continuity. Yeah. You could track and... from issue to issue. Exactly. Different series. You knew where, like, you know, Wolverine started here and then he went to this title for yeah. this bit. You could track it, everything. It wasn't where... happening in real time, but you could establish a timeline, you know? It, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and that takes a lot of work. And I, and I, of mean, course. I, I saw something not long ago. Again, I'm not going to do these titles, <laughs> but there was a huge villain reveal in one book. Well, well, in the other book, he was just a member of the villain, you know, the villain team. He was like, just, he was sort just of, there. Yeah, just yeah. there. And I was like, how could he be a reveal here? And there's no big deal there, you know? And it's like, sure. The oversight really is lacking. And, and I believe in some ways, Jim Shooter, you ever have a job like this, Chris, where, Somebody does it, and they spend so so many hours, and they're such sycophants, and they throw themselves at it that no other human could ever do it again. You know what I mean? Like they <laughs> they quit, and they got to hire three people. Yeah. Uh, but what he did needs to be done, even if it needs yes, three people. Does. You know, even if it sure. needs uh, a, a larger system. You know, I I don't necessarily want people to work hundred hours a week, but it might be a job that requires a hundred hours of work. A few people, and, sure. And it really is lacking. Uh, definitely out of the big two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's I, it's kind of less less of a thing in the indie uh, comics. They're kind of right in their own you know path. But yeah, uh, that's their own feel. Yeah. But you know, I, I really I really see a lot of these basic errors a lot of times that that shooter. I think he would have rooted them out, and I think he had a sensibility. And you know, he was in a way one of the very first, uh, if not the first, comic reader turned writer, exactly. the fan turned pro. Yeah. Uh, I think his mind is often on that. One last thing I want to say about him, though, is that I think he was definitely a very capable manager, very capable editor, and a strong sense of story. Uh, where he lacked, obviously, though, was appealing to big-name talent. And mm-hmm. Chris and I are of the opinion that big-name talent can go soak their heads as far as we're concerned. <laughs> However, that's not really the way you do business, you know? And, sure. part, and part of being a good manager would be appealing to them. And I, that's right. where that's yeah. where he lacked. Uh, yeah. That was where he was not good. I mean, the people that left under his purview, it was like every almost every name except for Chris Claremont, pretty much, it seemed, uh, and I guess J.R.J.R. So, you know, not a, not a perfect man, but I think that yeah. uh, Marvel, that I, I don't think there could be really a question that Marvel was better off for oh, him 100%. having been there, and he righted that ship. And you notice what happened uh, after he left. Marvel began their descent to bankruptcy. Uh, they undid just about everything they he really did. did. Yeah. Right, right out the... That's when, you know, like he was gone not long, and then all of a sudden Wolverine shows up in six or seven books in a month, and yep. and books are coming late. And Oh, God, it, oh, yes. Oh, and it's and just, the variants, and then, you know, uh-huh. really Holograms, really catering yeah. to the... To the uh, Creative the speculator and yeah. uh, the speculator. I mean, just a whole bunch of stuff, and it and it, it's a house of cards. Like you know, he said 
he's talking about people's careers and and he mm-hmm. looked at it like we have something here that employs a lot of people and i think and it's so, a relay not a sprint it's a exa- you know exactly. it's going to we're well, in this for the long haul. We, we, you know, we want we want this guy to, you know, feed his family in ten years. You know what I mean? Yes. We don't want him to, you know, be able to buy do a it Porsche today. today. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I not that I think that those kind of, that kind of money is being made hand over fist. And in many ways, in general, the comics industry is fairer to creators in in many good ways. I, I just want to say that sure. it's not the it's just not the same business that it was in Jim Shooter's time. It's a lot of different considerations. But sure. uh, I wish one of those considerations was the single issue buyer and that mm-hmm. is all I'm going to say about that uh for now uh if you're if you're done with your sh- shooting with shooter is that what we're going to call this section how about that sure <laughs> I, I think uh, I think that's that's about all that we uh, you you said something off the air that was very uh, very poignant um you said that he was uh he had the what was it that the manage he brought the writing of Marvel to DC, but right. the management of DC to Marvel? I think that's which true. I thought yeah. was really, really very wonderful way to put it because he was noticed at DC for bringing that more Marvel style over, but he really shook Marvel by bringing a more regimented DC management where it was no longer the frat house. It really was. I mean, from all accounts, it was like the what's crazy, it was the frat house, but. A lot less dope smoking and drinking than you would think, because I think these guys yeah. weren't about that, but they really were just kind of hanging around, wearing a t-shirt. One thing that Jim Shooter and other people always talk about in that period is that over at DC, you wore a shirt and tie to work every day. Yeah. Across the it street. It was a business. Yeah. You wore, you know, your Who Farted t-shirt and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, go. whatever, your uh, Steve Martin arrow through the head gag could, could be in the office, so... Uh, yeah, he, he, Jim Shooter, you know, he he talks about as much as Weisinger was very cruel to him. He taught him a lot of important things uh, about boring stuff like magazine distribution. And you yeah. know what I mean? This is stuff that I don't think a lot of these other guys that Just were... Fundamentals, yeah. That, that were EICs that Marvel had to head for at all. Uh, no. And so, you know, it, it was, a, you know, in the final analysis, it was a good thing that Jim Shooter... Was oh, yes. there, and you know, I I would always love to wonder what would happen if he had. I mean, what if he had become the uh, EIC over at DC? Uh, sure. What if, he, what if he was the publisher today? It would, it's just interesting. Uh, or if he managed to buy it uh, from under Perlman, that would have been really interesting. Uh, Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Wow, I don't even know where what it would be like now, but that's definitely something to consider. And of course, mm-hmm. we would love to know your thoughts about that too, Absolutely. gentle listener. <laughs> Now we'll uh, we'll wrap up this episode by uh, covering a little bit of listener mail. We've been really good about that. No, we haven't. Yeah, no, better, better, better. <laughs> better than we've been. Yes, and we're gonna start with our with our friend Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. He says, "Chris Reggie, have you guys been watching the Secret History of Comics on AMC? I have to tell you, I've watched every episode so far and pretty much know everything that they're talking about from listening to your podcasts." I think every episode has been covered on one of your shows. Stan Lee, Kirby, Wonder Woman, Milestone, Dakota, Image Comics, etc. It's like watching watered-down versions of your podcast on TV. They, for obvious reasons, cannot cover these topics the way you guys do. The series itself is fine. It's entertaining. But they leave a lot out, which is to be expected. If you've not watched, I would not run out and do and watch them all now. Uh, the Milestone one is the best one so far. If you're only to watch one, it should be that one. Regards. Uh, I, and I have not seen. 
I have seen it. Uh, I actually watched it kind of uh, spurred on by this email. I don't think we did a full milestone episode, have we? We've never done a milestone comic. Which no, one? we did the uh, we did that. I am curious black, which covered uh, some race issues right. in comics. So we, we touched, but on never it. dedicated. But well, yeah. we, but that's something we definitely need to expand on. Oh sure, uh, yes. And, you know, I think we're gonna have to. If no one else is gonna pick one, we'll pick one of the milestone debuts and use that as our uh, sure fulcrum to get into the history. But I, I did check these out. Uh, they are pretty good. They exactly like Jeremiah says. They're. Uh, sort of light versions of our podcast, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. The, the image one, I was surprised especially. I mean, Kirkman is an image partner. Yeah. And it was it was full, believe me. You, well, you walk away from there, you could, you know, have a good casual conversation about image, but a lot of the specifics about, like, the tone change and what went down between Liefeld and, uh, you know, the Sylvester, rest of the partners, yeah. Silvestri, and then, you know, that phone call. Good, the kind of stuff that we dig into, uh, they, they had left... On the cutting room floor, and you know, again, like Jeremiah says, for obvious reasons, they have sure. time, time limitations. Plus, they have constraints, burning bridges, and they yeah. have to interview people that have nothing to do with comics for some reason. That's something I noticed. It was just like, and here is an actor uh, who, uh, you know, <laughs> is like in a Marvel show, I guess. And it's like, I mean, and not not to, you know, they might be huge comics fans, but they, I don't know them. They don't say sure. anything about it, but whatever. Uh, but thanks for writing in. Uh, that is Absolutely. an. An all right show, and I'm, I, if nothing else, I'm glad to see uh, comic history on television in some form or fashion. I never uh, watched it because I'm, I'm always afraid that I'm going to like accidentally glean something and use it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, know, I, you don't want to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll let and you I know. never even knew it was a show until this email. So that's uh, I, I never heard about it or yeah. anything. Uh, Chris isn't allowed to watch television more than a half hour a month. So he, I'm allowed to watch The Office. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Reruns of The <laughs> Office, and uh, that's it. And so he doesn't. He he needs uh, people to help him out with what's going on in media. But <laughs> I would agree with Jeremiah, though. Not really something to rush out and see. Frankly. Mm. If you're listening to our podcast, you are probably more knowledgeable than uh, ahead of the else. game. Yeah, so you're good. Uh, our second one, and the last one we're going to read this uh, episode from Hussein Al Wasiti. This says, "Hey, Chris and Reggie, I am Hussein, get fresh crew member and reviewer for ComicsTheGathering.com. I'd like to thank you guys for the fantastic content you always deliver. I really love the Comics Code Authority series of episodes you did. You guys did." I think they may be the definitive guide to that whole era, complete with those cool sound clips that help ground everything you lay out for us. The Spawn number 1 episode really intrigued me. I've never read a single 90s image comic, but hearing you guys talk about it made me want to go back and pick up some Spawn. I've been aware of Todd McFarlane way before I got into comics, so that just goes to show how much of an influence he's had on the entertainment industry. I was familiar with him as someone who sold toys of his comic book characters. I have a question for both of you. What do you guys think of Grant Morrison's Adult Man? I finally had the opportunity to read the entire run, and it's utterly mind-bending emotional, and is one of the best stories I've ever read. I had high expectations for it, too, since All-Star Superman is my favorite comic of all time. I'm planning to read his Doom Patrol once I have the time and money. Anyway, thanks again for the laughs and the knowledge. Have a good one. And uh, thank you, Hussein. We did read... Mm-hmm. Animal Man, I think we did an issue on Cosmic Treadmill, right? That we was did the Coyote Gospel. The seven, I believe, number seven, I think that is, something like that. Something like that. Uh, somewhere in there. It's uh, Yeah, we did that issue. Number five? Maybe number five. It might be number five. Yeah. Uh, if we were better at this, we would <laughs> have it there, but it, it is in there, actually. Uh, that issue selected by none other than Jim Werner. But uh, I did, I have read this. I actually read 
a lot of it when it first came out, but it was a little esoteric for a young Reggie brain, you know what I mean? Sure. But uh, reading it later on, it is pretty darn smart stuff. And, oh, it's one. Yeah. You know, you got you to gotta have... It's it's a it's a certain type of person that's gonna like a Graham Morrison comic as much mm-hmm. as I we do. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's really all I can say about it. I don't really want to uh, go too far on it, but uh, I I have to say I'm really almost I like almost everything he's written, and yeah. uh, definitely you know you're talking about Doom Patrol. That's right in my wheelhouse. That mm-hmm. All Star Superman's great. I loved his run on Batman. I thought it was a lot of very inspired. A lot of it. We three is another great thing I, I, sure. I like. So only thing of his I haven't really liked, Chris, and we've talked about this off the air, is uh, that the Invisibles, right? Is that his? That's thing? just what I was about to say. That's the only one, right? And, and, it, yep. it's, and some people love it, and that's fine. And I, I've given it a try. Uh, I think I've even tried it twice. I think I even tried it and went back. Like I couldn't. I had to have yep. been wrong. I went through the first. I went through the first two trades a few times and never got inspired to buy the third. Yeah. Uh, another one of his I didn't like was the filth. See, I didn't read that one. Yeah, I didn't I've, think that I've was all that great. That uh, maybe I shouldn't be running to that one, but yeah, I, I yeah. didn't read that one. Uh, he has a, a series he did with Image called Nameless with Chris Burnham. Yep, that, that was, was good. It was pretty good. Yeah, really more of a visual, visually arresting type of thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because uh, Burnham and the very, very like quiet storytelling, I guess you could call it. But mm-hmm. a big fan to his for sure. And as far as the Absolutely. other, that was the only thing you talked about. You know, the as far as the image debuts, I gotta say, I've never read a full image comic until I did this show either. <laughs> or from the early, you know, the early nineties. Uh, the launch. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd look through them. I remember when they were around, but I'd never read one. And. uh yeah, that's uh, so I'm glad we could do that together. You know, we're really Absolutely. having a good time with it. So uh, keep them coming, folks. Keep the mails coming. And don't forget to send us some more selections. We are heading into 2018. And mm-hmm. uh, we still have a pretty robust list. We still have a lot of stuff on there. But we're always looking for more ideas, more things to uh, expand upon for some comics history. So if you have something to write to us, you can find us over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T mill history on Twitter at cosmic T mill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at ACE comics. Find our weekly writings and uh, reviews of DC comics over at weird science, DC comics.com. And you can find Chris's personal reviews of DC comics from uh, Every era over on Chris's on infinite earths.com where you just published your 700th post 700 daily discussions. How about that? Every single day for 700 days. What else have you done every day for 700 days besides the usual hygienic requirements? That's about it. That's it. Pretty much right. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> I've got I've got a stack of I've got a stack of books from the floor to the ceiling that I haven't gotten to, but uh, <laughs> I, you know I'll read when I'm dead. Yeah, you'll get so, to uh... them eventually. That's right. Maybe <laughs> like we say, maybe you'll break both your legs and you'll have a long Jim Shooter esque convalescence. You can really dig into them. <laughs> this is true. Uh, but yeah, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. Be sure to check that out. Thank you. And uh, we have our uh, the show blog at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where we list show notes, some images, uh, links, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, one link that we'll definitely be including this time around is to jimshooter.com, Jim Shooter's personal blog. Absolutely, yeah. It is one heck of a time sink. You will lose days 
Yeah, I got a lot of my is... information, a lot of his direct quotes from there. Not all of them, but uh, but even just beyond that, just the information, his reminiscences of the industry. It's mm-hmm. really a worthwhile read. Sure, the, all of his uh, all of his battles with Steve Gerber, or the uh, the paperwork for the uh, the sale of DC into Marvel, the oh yeah, the plot for John Byrne's oh, Superman script all, for Marvel. The, the, when we talked about the Roy Thomas contract thing. Oh, that all in memo there, yeah. is there? I mean, he he yep. scanned and it's put a, up the memo. Cadence not, memo, exactly. Yep. It's not. It's, it's not awesome. Like he he uh, redid it, so uh, it's a great resource. You got to check it out. Oh, absolutely. It's just I wish it was still updated, but uh, I'm happy for what we've got. Yeah. And speaking of happy, we would like to wish you all a happy and safe entry into 2018. That's right. Happy New Year, folks. Health and wealth to all. If you're listening to this on the day it's out, it is New Year's Eve, right? Am I right about that? Okay, yes. good. <laughs> so, so if you start this at around 10 o'clock at night tomorrow... That's right. <laughs> ...hours could be the first voices you can hear in 2018. <laughs> there you go, folks. We can help you ring in the new year. But really, everyone, have a happy and safe one, and uh hope you all are with your loved ones and having a good time. But I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Nope, we'll do it. Well, till next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill brandishly. See ya. Seeking you shall find what you may already have. Sometimes it's your own shadow standing in your path. I have spent my life with the vision of myself. I may have been somebody, somebody else. Time.